This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lam. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the world's most dangerous Bible podcast, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate the most important conversations in society from politics to pop culture and beyond. And today, well, today is a special one. Today is the anniversary of the passing of someone who was very dear to me. Listeners of the podcast will know that as a teacher and a mentor of just exceptional generosity and perspicacity, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs of Blessed Memory. And to help me remember Rabbi Sachs and talk through, more importantly, many of the ideas that he considered of vital importance for humanity's future, we have with us actually one of the last people to ever be in public conversation with him, someone whom I know Rabbi Sachs admired deeply. I know he read all of her books and he cited her often. She's a world-renowned professor at Yale Law School, author of books like the international bestseller Battle Him of the Tiger Mother. Everybody knows her. The brilliant Amy Chua is here with us. And in preparing for this episode, my mind kept returning to two journeys, both undertaken by young Europeans in their 20s with America as the destination, both part of a larger quest to understand something fundamental about morality and human affairs. These two journeys took place nearly 140 years apart, but they both share a very common theme. The first took place in 1831, when a 25-year-old French aristocrat was dispatched to America with the official purpose of actually studying its penal system, but whose true intent all along was to study what he called the Great Democratic Revolution, then underway in American society. And the young man, Alexis de Tocqueville, was not blind to America's faults, whether it's treatment of Native Americans, its evil attachment to slavery. But he also saw American democracy as a remarkable achievement, a nation full of free individuals, jealous of their self-worth and social equality, enterprising, industrious. And one thing, however, that he did not expect to find was the deep religiosity that he encountered in America. And in fact, Tocqueville considered this so remarkable that he eventually concluded that religion, particularly the sense of community, humility, and responsibility that it fostered, was essential for democracy's survival in a culture that encouraged relentless pursuit of individualistic success. Which leads me to the second journey, a journey that took place 137 years later in 1968, when a young Jonathan Sachs, then a second-year university student, decided to travel to America like Tocqueville before him, but in Rabbi Sachs's case, to meet as many great theologians and Jewish leaders as he could find with just a Greyhound bus ticket. And Rabbi Sachs talked about this trip publicly many times. It was then that he actually met my grandfather, the late Rabbi Norman Lamb, the legendary president of Yeshiva University. But the meeting Rabbi Sachs described most often and that appeared to have had the greatest impact upon him was his meeting with Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, who was the spiritual leader of the Chabad Hasidic movement. And as Rabbi Sachs told it, he had intended to ask the Rebbe all of his questions about Judaism, but instead the Rebbe kind of turned the tables and he asked a young Rabbi Sachs, how many Jewish students are at Cambridge University? And Rabbi Sachs said, about a thousand. And the Rebbe then asked, how many Jewish students get involved in Jewish life? And Rabbi Sachs replied, well, probably about a hundred. So the Rebbe kind of asked incredulously, so you mean 90% are just completely disengaged? And Rabbi Sachs said, yes. So the Rebbe asked, well, what are you doing about it? To which Rabbi Sachs began to kind of stammer back, well, in the situation in which I find myself, at which point, as Rabbi Sachs ruefully recalled, the Rebbe interrupted and said, you don't find yourself in a situation. 
you put yourself in a situation. And I think it's your responsibility to put yourself in a different situation. And in that moment, the Rebbe, as Rabbi Sachs explained, had done what great leaders always do. Because good leaders create followers, but great leaders create other leaders. So two journeys. In one, a young man came to America to study statesmanship and ended up learning about religion. And in the other, another young man came to America to study religion and ended up learning how to be a statesman on behalf of his people. Tocqueville learned how a great nation could foster free and responsible individuals. And Rabbi Sachs learned how a free and responsible individual could build a great nation, if only he were willing to put himself in that situation. Now, American society has arrived at a difficult juncture where our commitments both to individual excellence and to traditional community feel imperiled. But Rabbi Sachs, an eternal optimist for anyone who knew him, persisted till the day he died in seeing this right now as a moment of extraordinary potential to meld the wonders of individual human ingenuity, technological advance, with the natural yearning for meaning, purpose, and community expressed by religion to create a better, more virtuous world for for all humankind. And on this, the anniversary of his passing, I'm just inexpressibly honored to unpack this legacy with the incomparable thinker, writer, professor at Yale Law, Amy Chua. Amy, thank you so much for being here. Rabbi, thank you so much for having me. It's a huge honor, and wow, those were beautiful and such fascinating words. That's so kind of you. As you mentioned, you know, I had no idea in my last exchange with a rabbi that anything was wrong. He was so much younger and more vibrant and creative and original than, than, than <laughs> you know, my 23-year-old student. So, uh, so this is a great honor for me, and I, I can't wait to dive in. Wow. So, so, so actually, I mentioned earlier that you were one of the very last people to ever be in public conversation with Rabbi Sachs. And I know from him that he was a deep admirer of your works because he'd actually read all of your books and he quoted you often. Yes. Anyone who read Rabbi Sachs quoted you all the time. No, it was so funny. I was interviewing him about his most recent book, Morality, and we just had so much fun. And again, I later learned it was two months or so before his passing, but yeah. he seemed completely, you know, um, just just bouncing off the walls. And he, we made funny jokes about comparisons <laughs> between Chinese people and Jewish people and Tiger Mom and the breadth and depth of knowledge in this one person. I don't think I've ever experienced anything else like it. Unbelievable. So I'm curious, actually, about the other way around. Like, how did you first encounter him? So my husband is Jewish. I didn't convert. We had a Jewish household. Wow. Not probably by your standards, but... My younger daughter is, she calls herself a super Jew. <laughs> um, and again, not by traditional That's standards. That's my highest aspiration. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> She's just very proud and, Amazing. you know, did all her papers on Jewish history. And she kept telling me that there is somebody who follows you on Twitter. Now, I am not an active Twitter person. My daughter is the social media person. And she says, there's this brilliant person. He knows about your work. And and so I finally kind of clicked on it. And it, it was actually through my daughter that I kind of started reading about him and then following him. And when I got an invitation, I just jumped at it. Um, wow. But yeah. <laughs> I hate when people hate on social media because if not, for, oh. I mean, this is, this is how I find all the most interesting stuff. I love that story. That's amazing. 
Yeah. And to know he was so famous, like I, you know, <laughs> I'm not very good at social media, so I had no idea what a following. And first it was just this interesting man with all these ideas. When I Googled him on Wikipedia, oh my God, <laughs> Lord, I mean, such a famous and important person in the world. So you're right there. You know, we hear a lot about how ugly social media is. Occasionally, it brings really wonderful things. Amazing. Amazing. Well, so listen, you know, speaking of, so one of Rabbi Sachs's passions was education and its role in safeguarding a free society. And he was particularly insightful in articulating how the Jewish tradition had kind of vouchsafed this notion to Western society. Actually, one of my favorite lines that he ever wrote, I'll never forget, one of my favorite lines is, Jews became the people whose passion was education, whose citadels were schools, and whose heroes were teachers. I love that line. Love it. Now, I raise this because one of the books you're best known for, and you alluded to it earlier, is Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother, which I think has totally been misread as like some sort of attack on Western education, where I think in reality, it's like this really moving account of the challenges of being a parent. But what you do do is you contrast two styles of parenting or education more broadly, like a demanding model associated with China and a permissive model associated like literarily with Western societies. And the thing that always struck me about the outrage and like moral panic that this provoked was how it managed to obscure one of the most anomalous elements of American life. Because if there's one thing you can say for America, it's that we've this long history of, you know, being industrious and enterprising, like restless, as Tocqueville put it. We're constantly innovating new things and remaking ourselves and our environment. But the one area where this really hasn't been true is education. The first university in history, as Rabbi Sachs was fond of saying, the University of Bologna was founded in 1088. And in terms of how education takes place, like frontal instruction in a classroom, not much has changed in a thousand years. Now, for feudal societies or absolute monarchies or what have you, like perhaps this isn't the problem. But in a free society, in a democracy, shouldn't we be desperate to learn best practices in education? Like, shouldn't the reaction to your book, even the misreading of your book, by the way, have been, oh, my goodness, tell us more. Like, how do we do this? Like, why are Americans, even in elite academic spaces, so like averse to learning more about learning. Yeah. I mean, I I have thought about this question so much because first of all, you know, I didn't even expect the book to be controversial because it was kind of a memoir. Again, I have two daughters. um, They're half Jewish, half Chinese. And that's like the best ultimate like chocolate vanilla swirl flavor. It's great. (laughs) I do kind of think that. It's like CSNY. It's like a super group, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I will get to that. But my oldest daughter was an easy kid, very rule oriented. And my younger daughter was a rebel. So, and just, we were so close now, you know, but so the book was partly satirical, partly funny, partly, as you say, moving and tragic. I mean, I pushed it so far, this strict Chinese parenting thing that I really almost lost her. So there is a lot more reflection, you know, than you read about in the media. I have so much to say about this. First of all, Rabbi Sachs said to me at one point, he said, I read this and I realized that you've outdone the Jewish moms, you know, these, these <laughs> Chinese tiger moms. And I said, this is the only thing I'll disagree with you, Rabbi. I think it's more generational. So I love it that you start mm. with these immigrant stories because I think that the style of parenting, you mentioned high expectations, striving for excellence, you know, this kind of constantly holding yourself, you know, trying to be the best that you can be. I think that a lot of immigrants who arrive in this country have no other luxury but to tell their kids to work really hard. So what I told the rabbi is that if you look at the way Jewish parenting was in the 1900s, 1910, 1920, 1930, 
it is identical to what mm. is now called Chinese parenting. It was like, you got to be a doctor or a physicist, you know, <laughs> maybe a lawyer, you know, you got to play the piano or the violin, you know, you, A minus is a bad grade. So it's not so much, I mean, there is this intrinsic kind of Confucian emphasis on education that Jews have, I think from the Torah too. So Rabbi Sachs was really interested in, he said, the Chinese and Jews have two huge things in common, family and education. You know, that's why, you know, um, but what happens over generations, and this is not necessarily a bad thing, is that, you know, the first generation, you literally have no money, you're afraid for your survival. So you can tell your kids, they're not pampered. It's like, you got to do this. And there's a lot of bad stuff that can come with that too. Too much pressure, a lot of misery. But the next generation, like my parents, once they had kind of risen, I grew up still not a lot of money, but a lot more comfortable than my parents who arrived with nothing. So if you think about that generation of Jews that came over as tailors and butchers, the next generation, those kids were doing a little bit better, you know, and they then don't have to be as strict with their kids. It's not as natural. And by the time you get to fifth, sixth generation Jews, that's the kind of parenting that you're probably seeing in the United States now. And it looks really different from first generation Chinese immigrant parenting for sure. But I will tell you, if you look at Chinese immigrant families that are in their third generation, it's not strict anymore. It's not tiger parenting wow. anymore. Yeah. And I showed this in another book, The Triple Package. So anyway, you had asked a different question. It's although related, which is why don't we want to do best practices when it comes to parenting? You know, and I could not agree more. You know, when everything else, it's like, let's try to learn from the East and West, you know. <laughs> and when it came to parenting, I thought a lot about why people got so upset and I realized it's the hardest thing. It's so personal. We all want our kids to be happy and we want them to do well. And it's very difficult and we're all insecure. You know, I'm very proud of how my children came out, but we still have bad days. It's the hardest thing I've ever done <laughs> raising a child. I even said this, I said, you know, Middle East peace has nothing on trying to raise children. You know? <laughs> I feel this like very deeply in my soul. <laughs> yeah. Well, so that that actually is a good transition because I also wanted to talk about your most recent book, I think from 2018, Political Tribes, which was also a real a favorite of Rabbi Sachs. He quoted it several, several times. It's really one of my favorite books of the last decade. Thank you. Not even because of its like particular insights into like you talk about Vietnam and Iraq, polarization in America. And a lot of this emerges from you having like predicted a lot of the polarization in America, including the 2016 election. Although those were incredible as well. But because ultimately Political Tribes is a book about the importance of stories for understanding and even changing culture. But right? each culture or society has a narrative, a mythos, a story. Why is it important for us to know that? Well, I think it goes back to what you said about Tocqueville and and how Rabbi Sachs was looking at this terribly polarized moment that I got to tell you, it's rough. I teach on a very left-wing campus and it is rough. He wanted to find some optimism and some way out. And in this book, I, you know, say some provocative things. I introduce this idea of a super group and I say that America is almost uniquely in the entire world a supergroup. Let me explain what I mean by that. To be a supergroup, you need two things. It's super easy. One, you need a very strong, overarching collective identity, like Americans, you know. But secondly, to be a supergroup, you also have to let individual sub tribes, subgroups flourish. If you think about it, Ari, it is much rarer than you think that you get both these things. Like if you look at China, my ancestral country, 
it's not a super group because it satisfies the first condition. It's got this incredibly strong Han Chinese overarching identity. But oh my, you know, talk to the Uyghurs, the Tibetans, obviously religions and subgroup identities cannot flourish in a healthy way there. Even a country like France, that in many ways is so similar to the United States, it's a Western democracy now, actually is not a supergroup either. Because like China, they've got this very strong, overarching French identity. But one of the reasons there's so much tension and polarization there is that because of their laicite, and there's a lot of talk that sub-religious groups, whether it's the Muslims or the Jews, or aren't really allowed to kind of openly, you know, you can't wear open symbols of religion. It's just a little bit different. And the idea, I think one of the presidents said, if you want to live in France, you have to eat like a Frenchman, right. talk French. like a Frenchman. Think, right. Yes. And that's, you know, that's a model. Um, you know, again, I'm not necessarily saying better or worse, but America is unique. And this is a place where you can be a Jewish American, a Korean American, a Lebanese American, a Mexican American, and still be intensely patriotic at the same time. So that goes to your question about stories. I'm really worried about our collective story. What is this collective identity that's going to hold this country together? Because I'm perfectly agree that we can't whitewash our history. Like, of course, our founding fathers were extremely imperfect. We didn't let African-Americans, but we had slavery. We had, you know, terrible Chinese exclusion acts, anti-Semitism. So nobody's saying that we've had a perfect history. But what I'm seeing right now in kind of our society is a lot of young people saying, oh, the Constitution is just a document of white supremacy. Those aren't real principles. America is a country rooted in genocide. Or why should we respect Tocqueville or the founding fathers? They're just all white male rapists. You know, they had slaves or whatever. And again, I'm not disagreeing that it's it's good to acknowledge that, that we had a lot of terrible dark stains. But I'm a little bit worried, and I think the rabbi and I shared this, that we're kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater, you know, which is confusing the idea that you could have a constitution that has these great principles in it that, you know, allow for freedom of religion, you know, and all these things, freedom of identity, even within the Jewish community, so many different kinds of Jews. And to kind of see that that is something valuable and that we shouldn't you can see what's happening now. Should we even celebrate Thanksgiving, you know, get rid of Christopher Columbus and all these things? And I sympathize with it. I, I teach at a very liberal campus, but I think we have to find a balance. Otherwise, there's going to be no story to kind of hold the larger country together. So it's, it's interesting. This is actually the latest book project I'm working on. So I think the challenge is the story that America likes to tell about itself is rooted in a contract theory of society, which is... We create an agreement about how to live together. And if the terms of the agreement are honored, then we keep going. And if they're not, then we break apart. And if we can show that the agreement was premised on false commitments or what have you from the beginning, then we can undo the entire thing. And I think we tend to think when we say, well, you know, America can't be exceptional because it was conceived in iniquity. I think what sort of traditional American exceptionalists and sort of the new and I think in many ways like deranged critics of the American story have in common is this contract view of society, which is that you need to be conceived in virtue to continue. Interesting. And what I think Rabbi Sachs helped at least kind of introduce into the conversation is the idea of covenant, which he spoke about often. 
But the way that I think about it is that covenant is a really helpful way to think about social foundings for nations like most of us that are not founded in virtue. Because the way that nations are founded in the ancient world, the Bible, Hebrew Bible is just one example, are covenantally, where aside from many other important points, a covenant is how you take a group of people that are quite rotten and you tell them, here's how you frame your aspirations to be better. Very interesting. And you're exceptional, not because you're great now, but because you aspire to be better tomorrow. And so what Covenant does is it allows you to say, of course, we were slave owners of of, like, of course, America treated people horribly. The point is that we're enshrining values that will help us be better tomorrow. And how many nations can say truly that not just that they aspire to be better, but that they're enshrining as a fundamental principle of their existence, aspiration to be better. I love that. I mean, I really like that framing. You know, you should, I'm, I'm excited for your <laughs> I book. Should write, I should write this book. <laughs> but I mean, you're right. Like, I think people, you know, it's it's good to be, you know, critical to a certain extent. But, you know, most nations in the world are ethnic nations. They're rooted in blood or, or something. And, and I'm not criticizing that. It's just a fact. Like, China is rooted in this kind of bloodline. They, and many of the European countries, even though they're now trying to become multicultural democracies. They are, as you say, originally rooted not in principle, not in these aspirational principles. So you're absolutely right that this is kind of part of our unique story. And I really very much like your framing. And, you know, and it, and it also kind of links so many different ethnic groups together. At the end of Political Tribes, I, I cite a poem by Langston Hughes, mm. African-American. Yes. And you said Martin Luther King Jr. all over the place. Like, these are great, like, theologians of the American experiment. Right, right. And they said in different words something kind of like what you said. So write that book, Ari. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, now I have an assignment from Amy Chua's. (laughs) I know. Hold on just one sec. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. And we're back. So you mentioned it earlier. It seems to me... There obviously is sort of like this great, maybe too online fascination with Yale because people are justifiably interested in Yale because it supplies so many of the people who like drive policy in America and internationally. But these days, it seems that something is fundamentally strange and maybe even wrong things happening. At Yale. Whether it's in the most recent controversy that Aaron Sabarian reported on about, yep. uh, you know, a student who's being subject to this crazy disciplinary hearing for what seemed to be these pretty innocuous comments. I feel like there's this move that folks try to make where they try to connect this kind of like soft despotism at Yale to wider and more elemental struggles for justice, whether it's like racial justice or ethnic justice, whatever it is. And it just seems so strange because Yale is just such like an elite space. Like if there's any place in the world that's where people are not oppressed, it's at Yale. And this, I think, seems to describe a lot of elite spaces where these kinds of things are being litigated. So what is happening in American elite culture and why is it why is it fixated on trying to portray itself as something other than what it is? Yeah, I mean, this is a huge topic and I live it every day. And I will first of all say um, that you're absolutely right, that something has changed. Like it was so fun for the first 20 years of my teaching at Yale. My favorite thing, it was kind of a special skill of mine, I guess. I would have genuinely diverse classes. So I would be among the very few classes that you'd have a whole bunch of conservative students, but also because of who I am, tons of African-American students, Asian students, Latino, the most progressive. And for 20 years, I would be provocative, make topics, 
you know, have them debate. And then afterwards, people would go out for like coffee and argue. And it was like the intellectual dream. Even like eight years ago, I had Federalist Society, those are the conservative students, arguing with people at the other end. Completely impossible now. Big changes. Number one, if you are a liberal or progressive person and you have a friend, just a friend who is conservative, let's say in the federal society, you are called FedSoc adjacent. FedSoc adjacent is term and you are ostracized. Your friends won't talk to you. That's change one, that there was just zero interaction now between right and left. And it's much more segregated. So it's like I used to do mixers, Black Students Association with JILSA, Jewish Law Students Association. Never. I mean, that is absolutely impossible now. Just it won't work. Another difference. My students now are genuinely afraid not just to raise their hand and make points, but if there's like a Twitter piece or just somebody says something that they and they like it. You know, if they just like it, they can be canceled. I've heard this. Like, I've heard people have, like, alternate social media accounts so that they can like things that they would never like on their main account. I didn't know that. But, I mean, I'm still the old me, and I've just refused to change. Like, <laughs> I'll like something, if even if it's written by a controversial person. You know, Barry Weiss, you know, she's so brilliant, you know. And, I, <laughs> and people are like, but you retweeted her. Yes. Yes, I did. Because she you know, rocks. Um, <laughs> yes, exactly. But it, this, it, and Even if she didn't, though, right? Like, right. But the fear in this, so that's a big change. And I have completely observed what you have, that a lot of times the people driving this are, and I have so many theories that goes back to parenting and larger issues of entitlement, who are actually from an extremely privileged space. My favorite part of teaching now is I'll have you know immigrants, poor immigrants, like Iraqi American students who are very left wing, but their parents were refugees or people from Russia or you, I mean, just immigrants from anywhere, you know, Ecuador. And they'll say, Professor Chio, we can't admit it, but I might want to succeed. You know, <laughs> like, you know, I, I, I might, you know, whether it's to become a judge or clerk or to become a partner in a firm or to become a professor, like they're afraid to admit that because that's part of this kind of white patriarchy or so it's all confused. And to be the optimist that I usually am, I will say that I think that, you know, we're going through, this is part of political tribes. We're obviously seeing an enormous amount of demographic change. There's demographic transformation for the first time in U.S. history. Whites are going to lose their majority status at the national level sometime around 2050. We don't know what it will look like. You know, there's big debate about exactly how, but, you know, in uh, many cities already, non-Hispanic whites are already no longer a majority. And as I say in political tribes, the result is that everyone feels threatened now, not just African-Americans or Muslim Americans, but whites feel threatened. So it's a kind of a time where a lot of previously silenced voices are now talking and there's a lot of people feeling defensive. And so it's not all for terrible reasons, but I will say that I've never seen my students so unhappy. Hmm. Never. I mean, they're much more stressed. They're much more afraid. So something is definitely wrong. I'm hoping that it's growing pains and that we're going to kind of adjust, that we're going from a time when it was very homogeneous and it was a lot of just certain kinds of people talking to a much more diverse population and kind of in this ugly period right now where we're at the worst of all worlds. But you're onto something. It's a little bit of a mess right now. I kind of think that places like Yale or other elite spaces like that, by their very nature, need to somehow be selective and they need to find ways to keep people out. In the past, it was kind of easy to do that because you could just be racist, right? So like you yeah, could just have right. Jewish, you could have Jewish quotas, you could have Asian right. quotas, right? <laughs> you could have things right. like that. Now, 
those strategies have kind of been closed off. And so you need new strategies for being extremely selective and policing the boundaries of the institution. And I feel like this sort of soft despotism is like an easy way both to easily sort people into bad guys and good guys, into heroes and villains, and also to do it in a way that kind of privileges people who are like overeducated, right? Because how could you possibly know how to like, like half the speech loads on campus, like you would never know them unless you've been educated into the elite spaces that propagate them. Oh my gosh, the sort of, I, I don't like this term politically correct, but the kind of vocabulary that you need to keep up with is to say Latinx instead of Latino and LGBTQ, whatever. If you get it wrong, you know, you're considered very offensive or xenophobic or racist. But to your point, like somebody in the middle of the country or just like from a poor neighborhood in Brooklyn, they're not going to know how to do that. You have to, you know, you have to be how like, how you possibly know? Right. right. And also, why do we want to do that? You know, it's, like, it's almost like another way to be exclusionary. And there's a, something else going on on top of that, which is it's a little bit weird. It goes back to your point, the way you began about Rabbi Sachs and commitment to excellence and striving. It's almost like you're seeing this race to the bottom right now. People call it oppression Olympics. You know, that the currency now is to be the most oppressed, you know. So I've literally seen an admissions essay from a person who was just a Caucasian from a privileged family. The essay was that because the person was from such a white privileged family, it was traumatic growing up that way. You know, uh, and, you know, and, 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 yeah, it was just very difficult to find. The, hey, I respect the hustle. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Oh, my God. So because I really feel a strong affinity for that sort of Rabbi Saxian optimism. So my case for optimism now would be this moment, if you want to frame it as like, this is just a repeat of the same old gatekeeping that elite spaces have done forever and certainly in American history. So look at what came out of the last attempt at gatekeeping. And you've actually written a lot about this as well, like minority groups that are sort of cursed with having succeeded. Um, so like dominant minorities. Yes. Right. So the last time this happened to I'll speak from, you know, my own community's experience, my parents age or certainly my peers, but my parents age. If you're a Jewish person who went to medical school, like you went to any medical school. And if you were lucky, you got into a top medical school. Yeah. Anyone my grandparents age in the Jewish community who went to medical school, for example, my wife's grandfather was a very prominent physician. He went to medical school in the Caribbean because you couldn't get into medical school here. You weren't allowed in. Um, yeah. I remember my grandfather Luckily, this happened. He applied for a Ph.D. program in chemistry at Columbia and was asked by the interviewer, why do you people keep applying here? And was so offended that he decided to become a rabbi. <laughs> and so, and that was the ultimate terrible decision. But what happened as a consequence of that was the Jewish community kind of said to themselves, OK, listen, if nobody's going to help us, we'll help ourselves. And yeah. we decided to build up institutions. That's where Yeshiva University became a university from a college. That's how Einstein Medical School was created, yes. which is now a top school. You look at the Asian community, I, I know there's so many different subsets. It's kind of like a census-based generalization, but yeah. you've seen so much flourishing in the various sub-communities, maybe not in spite of oppression, but maybe because of having to just kind of re-immigrantize yourself in every generation because you're constantly being gatekept. And even if you're not an ethnic minority, if you're an ideological minority, being gatekept is such a spur to immigrant, if I, I guess I'll coin a term, to immigrantize yourself. And so... I'm hoping that in the next generation, like, do you think in the next generation, like, what can this spur in communities that are facing this now? Yeah. Oh, you know, first of all, I love the way you spun things. 
You're right. Now, when I think about those three generations, it's progress. Right. It's you know, amazing. This is a good moment. Yeah, you're right to, to think back. And by the way, you're, you're, you're touching on another book that uh, the rabbi and I talked about, which is another book I wrote called The Triple Package, precisely mm. says that what allows some groups to be very achievement, not necessarily always in terms of universities, but it could be, you know, religious thinking or writing novels or whatever, but that kind of incentive to just strive for excellence. I have a book co-authored with my husband that these groups that do extremely well at any point in history have three traits. One is a sense of exceptionalism. This is confidence, like chosen people yeah. or the Chinese, it's center of the universe, you know, yeah. center of civilization. But if you just had that, that kind of sense of superiority, then you'll be lazy. You're like, hey, we're the best. I'm just going to sit back. What you need with that is element two, which is almost the opposite, which is a sense of insecurity. This is kind of what you refer to. Hey, you're talking my language. <laughs> right. But it's that combination of a sense of exceptionalism with the sense of being an outsider, looked down on, not being respected enough that creates, and I cite all these studies, drive, like this feeling like we're going to show everybody. And the third element is impulse control and discipline, which we can talk about whether that has declined some in certain Jewish segments and, you know, over immigrant. It's very interesting. But, you know, on a darker side, another book I've written is about the backlash against these market dominant minorities among the kind of less successful, resentful majority. And I know Rabbi Sachs was very taken with your work on this. He actually cited it often when he explained anti-Semitism. Yeah. And it's tricky because nobody's saying that's the only reason, you know, but you start to see it's also Asian Americans and even the Lebanese and West Africa. It's quite a interesting phenomenon. And if you look a little bit about kind of what's happening in the school system in New York City right now or just across the country, wanting to remove merit, wanting to take away the SATs, you know, kind of a shift away from these methods of getting into higher education that it seems like certain people are better at. I think that you can view that as, in a sense, uh, a form of backlash. You know, the Jews went through this at a certain period when with Stuyvesant and all these schools, when they were testing, when it was all, it's, it's you know, it's different immigrants over a different time. But right now, you know, at these schools, it's it's kind of principally directed against these Asian immigrants. And what's sad there is like many of these Asian immigrants are poor. Their parents are, you know, laundromat owners and, and restaurant owners. This is not a question of people previously privileged. So, so many different themes. I love it. So I, I suppose from there, one of the, the last questions I wanted to ask was, so Rabbi Sachs, I think most people don't know this, had actually a very keen ear for pop culture. You actually could hear yeah, Beatles. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, you actually could hear subtle references throughout his speaking writing, like in his conversation with you. Yeah. Uh, I actually, when I rewatched it, I actually noticed he made a few Hamilton references, which was yes. like he was up. So erudite. Like he was up on it. Now, right now, I'm like obsessed with two shows in particular. One still going, and one that finished already. Uh, Succession and Veep. And I don't know if you've oh seen Oh my God, I, I love both. I love both. Amazing. There's so much in common. Yeah, I, I was so upset that Succession, the latest episode, it's only one at a time. Oh, it's killing me. Like I want to switch, <laughs> like I want to like switch, like I wanted to rent out like Monday space to Sunday so that I, I could have another one. Oh my God, totally. So I know. here's my read and I want to run it by you. I think what both shows have in common, and this occurred to me Sunday night when I was obsessing over Succession, they're both allegories, one in the dramatic sense and the other one in the comic mode for what our world would look like if the biblical revolution had failed and like paganism had triumphed. So like in, it's like in both shows, the social elites, whether in media or in politics, are totally above the laws of mere mortals, totally. 
The only time they come into contact with other humans is to toy with them or to exploit them. In succession, you even have this like old god, Kronos like figure who's like trying to yes. devour his children and whose children, like the Olympians, are trying to depose him. And like the gods of Greece or Babylonia, these elites are like petty, venal, jealous, power hungry, and they answer to nobody. Yeah. And I feel like these shows are trying to communicate something really important about elite culture in America right now. And kind of it's like it's de biblicization. Like there doesn't seem to be any rules. And you could apply this both yeah. to right and to left, maybe not equally, but still. Now, Tocqueville thought that that's why America needed religion for democracy to survive. Like he meant Christianity, but it could be any kind of transcendent faith. Something to restrain even the powerful. So before we talked about what's wrong in elite spaces, we talked about how it could be an advantage for people who are being gatekept. But if we wanted to make a case for the salvation of the old elites, you know, even if we're kind of trying to be charitable, where do they get that restraint in the next generation? Like, how are they saved? Or are American yeah. elites just going to keep getting worse and worse? <laughs> you know, Ari, that is so brilliant that oh. little comparison between those two like hey you should write hey, that you up have said something i said was brilliant check <laughs> no it's so interesting and connecting it to rabbi Sachs's kind of deeper commitments and passions because you're right if you look at both veep and succession those people are completely amoral i don't know if they're immoral yeah. amoral you know? they don't have bad opinions they have no opinions they're just <laughs> that's what's so shocking there's like nothing sacred about that i've literally not been th never thought about this until you just set this framework but now that i think about it they don't have religion there's no larger something that they are afraid of that answer to they are completely terrible about family right these are people that just do vicious yeah. that's part of whatsoever like the way um veep was to her daughter it just it's just like right and, right and, um, you know and yeah and no no loyalty in that direction which is part of what's so shocking and succession oh my god this the siblings the up and down and community too these things that you we mentioned you know so it's kind of just all the individual i need to think about that but i kind of love that as a jumping point yeah i actually agree with you i'm not I was raised not Jewish, although again, my kids were, I was raised, sure. believe it or not, my mother was Catholic. Now we're talking. <laughs> that's a, yeah, but I like that. At Yale Law School, most people are super secular and left away. Mm. You know, I almost feel there's discrimination if you say you're religious. Like they're like, they can't be that smart then, you know? <laughs> but when I was little, I, because of the 10 commandments, I really thought that if I lied, a thunderbolt would kill me. <laughs> you know, I, 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 and so it's kind of a weird way to learn morality. And my husband, who's much more secular, debates like, why do you need that image? Why can't you just be moral yourself? But it was very helpful for me, you know, to kind of have this. And I like the community of, you know, I like these institutions. But anyway, you, you end on a very great question. I think that the rabbi is right, that the answer has to go back to some, you know, whether it's, uh, I mean, nothing is more important for me than family. You know, mm. and that's weird to me that that is now a conservative position. Like, why should that be a conservative right. position? Right? How is that ideologically coded? <laughs> yeah, why? Yeah, why should that be? You know. So, so, so. Anyway, it's very interesting. I'm a very family oriented person. You know, the difference is community. I once had a quip that I think of Jews as just being so similar to the Chinese in America, just three generations ahead. You know, uh, because you know, we're like you season first, three. <laughs> Because when you first come as an immigrant, my parents, when they first got here, were very not civic. All they wanted to care about was the family because they were outsiders. They could barely speak the language. So you kind of hunker down with your own. They didn't care about voting. And over time, they became more civic and more community oriented. So I've always found that the Jews were kind of ahead 
at the same time that you care about family, also having the importance of community and even kind of commitment to the country. But the Chinese just right behind, three generations behind. <laughs> wow. Wow. So last thing, is there a project that you're working on now? Like, what can we plug? Well, they're both top secret. One, I'm oh, totally going to fail. Okay. One, I, I did just finish a historical fiction murder thriller that. Um, oh my god! That I'm dying. I think I'm you, so excited. Yeah, it's it's so hard to write about the current moment now, precisely because of all the reasons we're talking about it. I'm not a fan of this cultural appropriation stuff, which is it's like a catch twenty two. Which is, let's say you're a Caucasian person. Well, you shouldn't make a character who's Latina or African American or Asian because you can't understand that. But then that would mean that if you're a Caucasian author, all your characters have to be white. <laughs> and then, you know, and, and then that would be charged with lack of diversity, you know. So I chose to do a historical fiction thing rooted in 1944 and 1930 because I could talk about a wow. lot of the similar tensions we had here. You know, there was, you know, Japanese internment. There was the Mexicans were repatriated. There was the Holocaust going on. And so I have a fun um, thing. So if it goes anywhere, I will let you know. And I am interested in another nonfiction book that is also trying to understand this moment, but that's all I'll say for now because I'm still working it out. So maybe the next time we talk, we can talk about your book and my book. <laughs> I love it. I'm so excited. Amen. Amy, thank you so much for being here. It was so fun and really a huge honor. Thank you. Rabbi Sachs was fond of saying that only the Greeks believed that P and not P were actually incompatible statements. But the Bible knew the truth. Life is complicated, and sometimes both P and not P are true at the same time. I mean, just read the book of Genesis or the books of Samuel and Kings. It's not just that they're literary masterpieces. Those books are remarkable because they get at the terrible and glorious messiness of human existence, a messiness that could only be captured by great stories. And moreover, if we wish to preserve those stories, if we wish to give humanity its best chance to flourish in a weird, messy world, then what we need is education. We need to teach stories, not just tell them. And so my prayer is that we as an American society heed this wisdom, the wisdom of Rabbi Sachs, and the kind of wisdom taught by thinkers like Amy Chua in the hopes of leaving the world better when we ultimately leave it than it was when we entered it. Anyway, thanks so much for listening. And if you enjoyed the pod, which I hope you did, then please go be awesome. Head into Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, anywhere you get your podcasts and give us a rating. Five stars only because it really helps people find the show. Okay, that's it for now. This is Ari Lam making a good faith effort. I'll see you next time. Good Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lam. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice, because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Paul Ruest. This is a Soul Shop podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lamb and sign up for our email list at soulshopstudios.com slash goodfaitheffort. For more information about Soul Shop, follow Soul Shop on Twitter at Soul Shop Studios and on Instagram at soulshop underscore studios. And check out soulshopstudios.com. Soul Shop Studios.